Amen. You can be seated. It is good to know that we are loved. Good to know that His love is obvious. I think it's good to know that because around us, we really see the effects of sin surrounding us. I mean, really, when you stop and think about it, maybe one of the most, one of the clearest places we see it is in marriage. Tim Keller and his wife recently wrote a book. It's called uh, The Meaning of Marriage. I would commend it to you. Uh, he gave a talk recently describing some of the points that he made in his book, and he shared some statistics that I wanted to share with you. I think it, I think it gives us a perspective, really, of the world we live in today and in our view of marriage. He says that 50% of marriages end in divorce. Comparing that to the 1960s, he says it was half of that in the 60s. So in the span of... I don't know, to do the math. I should have done the math before I got up here because I can't. When I had my calculator handy. A long time. Maybe not as long as we would think, but the, the reality is, let me, let me just be real honest with you so that you can, so that you can kind of know where this falls out at. There's a lot of studies that say it's not that high, that it's really probably closer to the low 40s, uh, and that we sometimes use these statistics to, to shock people and challenge people. But regardless of whether you're looking at the 50s, Versus the 40s, it's a shocking number of marriages that end. Basically, one in two people, uh, one in every two marriages, divorce. Compared to the 60s, it was half of that. Another comparison shows that in the 60s, 75%, 75% of all American adults were married in the, in the 60s. 75%, that's a vast majority of American adults. Today, it's less than 50% of American adults are married. But that doesn't mean that we're not hooking up and living as if we're married. In the 60s, the number of people that lived together, that cohabited, you know, a husband or a man and a woman who lived together as if they were married without the covenant, without the commitment. In the 60s, that number was negligible. I mean, it didn't even really register, according to what Tim Keller's research showed. But today, this is, this is the statistic he gave. I don't have it for the men. But today, one-fourth of all women are living currently. One-fourth of women who live in the United States are living with a man outside of marriage. I'm not talking about their husbands and brothers or, or fathers and brothers. That's talking about a man that they're romantically engaged with, involved with. And half of all women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s will live with a man at some point in their life. That they'll cohabit. They'll live together prior to marriage or outside of marriage. So what this shows is the more people are divorcing, less people are marrying, substantially more people are choosing to live together because marriage is losing its ground in America. We are, we are seeing a, 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 what, what used to be a normal thing for people we're seeing it being, we're seeing a lack of interest. We're seeing a lack of importance. We're seeing that, that people don't take it seriously. And while this is going on in the heterosexual world, while we're giving up marriage, homosexuals are fighting for their civil right to marriage. It's really kind of crazy when you stop and think about it. Because biblically, the people who are called to marry are giving it up. 
and the people who is really withheld from are fighting for it. That, the, you see the, the, the inconsistency and the, the distorted perspectives being... Re- I mean, currently, same-sex marriage is, is legal in 17 of the United States and Washington, D.C. 17 states within the United States and Washington, D.C. have said, it's okay, come get married, we don't, we're, we're okay with it. In, in our state of Missouri... The reality is, is that we have a constitutional ban against homosexual marriage. But in 2014, same-sex couples were allowed to, to, to um, file their taxes jointly as if they were married. And so we're seeing already, even in a state as conservative as Missouri, we're already seeing that it begin to transition the other direction. Now, this is not a, this is not a talk against homosexual marriage and, and civil unions. It's, it's not my intent. I'm not, I'm not here to condemn the world in their practice of marriage. The reality is, whether you realize this or not, the world's been messing up marriage since the creation. All right? So, so lost people don't get marriage right, okay? It it's, should be expected. So I'm not here to beat the world up. What I want us to do, what I want us to recognize is that, that even though our grandparents and our, our great-grandparents didn't see the fight coming. They didn't see this issue looming in front of them. We, have a, we, ha, we, we, we really stand in a place we, we stand in a place where we've lost sight of the importance and the role of marriage in our, in our world. Now some people would go so far as to say that, the, that marriage is under attack. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think marriage is an innocent, innocent bystander. And I think we learned that in this passage that we're going to study today. I think the reality is that God's glory is under attack and marriage happens to be the battlefield that that glory and that war for his glory is now being fought on. You see, as we fight against uh, a marriage uh, based on biblical ideals and biblical perspectives, we're not just simply saying marriage is, is not worthy. We're saying God's ideal and God's perspectives and his created order is no longer good enough for us. We've got a better way. You see, the reality is, is that every time we step outside the confines of marriage to engage in, in sexual relationship, in, in the, in the uh, building of family without marriage, the reality is we are not attacking marriage. We are attacking God and His glory. And I think it's just simply a battlefield on which now we are waging war against Him at large in our culture. And sadly, sadly, even in the church, now, there's statistics that would demonstrate that the church is just as guilty in marriage. Now, to let us off the hook a little bit, the reality is when you, when you hear statistics that say the church is just, the people in the church are just as likely to divorce as people in the world, the reality is, is that it's because the way we define church membership. You see, the reality is that there's a lot of people who say they're members of a church that never darkened the door of that church, but culturally they say they belong to that church. So they, so they, well, I'm a Christian and I got divorced. And so all of a sudden that statistic measures them. But, but it demonstrates the truth is when you ask the questions that go far enough to deal with a person's commitment to their faith and how they're living out, the truth is that within the church we're much less likely to divorce. But that doesn't deny the fact that we are still divorcing. And if you know my history, you know that I'm a statistic. So I'm not standing here to condemn. I'm not standing here. I'm just simply saying, let's look at the Word of God. Because the reality is, as we come to this, this is a call not just for us to, to understand marriage 
and our roles in it. This passage that we're going to study today is as intensely focused upon us seeing the glory of God revealed for the good of His people. So let's read it. We're going to read the whole thing. That's why I didn't ask you guys to remain standing for this. We're going to start in verse 22 and we'll read all the way through to verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the sanctifying or cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, before we get into this, before we deal with what's next, we really need to deal with the context. You need to see it so that you can really grasp the fullness of it. This passage falls in the second half of Paul's letter, which is really commands and instruction for people who are believers, who are followers of Jesus Christ, for people who have been made alive in Christ. The whole first half of Ephesians is all about Jesus doing a work for God the Father, for the glory of God the Father, such that we are made alive. It says that we have been saved by faith, this uh, uh, saved by grace through faith, this not of ourselves, so that no one can boast. Not even our faith is our own to claim. It's a gift of God. It comes from him. It says that we were bound to sin, that we were that we were that we were bound in death and that, that through through Jesus Christ, we are made alive. It says that we were distant from God, but we were made close by the work that God did through through his son, Jesus Christ. It says that we are are uh, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, not because we deserved it or earned it, but because God decided to distribute it. You see, that's the whole teaching of the first section of Ephesians. And if you get these out of order, if you put them in, in the wrong order, then all of a sudden we are telling people and we're standing out in the world saying, you've got to get your marriage right so Jesus will love you. But Jesus loved us and now empowers us to get our marriage right. You see how important that is. This isn't a teaching for us to go out proclaiming to the world. It's not a teaching to hold them to because if we do, we've only given them a law to abide by that will fail them and leave them hopeless. So the reality is if I get a chance, I'm going I'm to vote against homosexual marriage. But I'm not going to stand on a street corner and demand that everyone live by this teaching. But I'm going to stand before you as your pastor, as, as a man who leads believers to obey this teaching. We've got to get the order right. Second, I, th- I think that we also need to recognize one, a little more specifically 
that Paul teaches on marriage as a result of his teaching, as, as telling believers to submit to one another. He didn't come and just immediately say, wives, submit to your husbands. But if you back up just one verse, he says, uh, talking to the whole church, talking to everyone, male and female alike, submit yourselves to one another. And that teaching is connected directly to being filled by the Spirit. You see, the reality is, is that we, it is our responsibility. It is our, it is our, um, our, it's necessary for us to obey Paul's command to get in way of the Spirit. To get in His way. To be like sails on a sailboat and lift our sails so that they can actually catch the wind. The reality is, Christian, it is possible for you to walk and not be under the influence of the Spirit. But he's saying, be filled with the Spirit, be influenced by Him, be empowered by Him, be directed by Him, and submit to one another as you do that. Give your life up for one another. And then he illustrates it specifically with marriage. Husbands and wives submitting to one another in different ways. Parents and children submitting to one another. Employers and employees submitting to one another from different perspectives. But he spends the bulk of his time on marriage. Because I think, I think what he's demonstrating to us is that, that, that this roles, these roles in marriage and this fight for godly marriage, for good, God-centered, gospel-empowered marriage is not a fight that's an end in itself. That it, It's not just about fighting for marriage. I think he demonstrates clearly that it's a fight for the glory of God and the good of His church. And I think those two perspectives are clearly seen. In fact, that's really going to be the bulk of the sermon, the, the two points there. First, we're going to deal with the glory of God. First, the Christian marriage is a window through which we are able to see the glory of God. If you think back as I read that passage, how many times is Jesus mentioned? He's every point of the way, every step of the way, every piece of the puzzle. Jesus is there. Wives, submit as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Then he goes down and he breaks out what that looks like. But he goes down a little further and he comes to this covenant piece and he says, Therefore, men will leave their father and mother and they will cleave to their wife. He uses this covenant language and he says, This is a profound mystery. But I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The reality is, is that we're not simply seeing Paul give us teaching on the roles of marriage. We're seeing Paul break out the beauty and power of the glory of God through the gospel. Enacted in our marriages. Think about it. He ties it. He ties it into this to this perspective that Jesus cannot be absent from our marriages, and that when we when we act in the ways that we're called to act, when we fulfill the roles that we're called to walk in, Jesus is he's demonstrated. He's he's central to our perspectives. He's his example is followed. His power is necessary, and he ties it all the way back to creation. Maybe you don't recognize that phrase. Maybe you don't recognize. Maybe it didn't click in your in your in your mind. Maybe it didn't ring a bell. But the reality is, is that phrase that that Paul refers to this covenant marriage is the very same line that God used when He referred to Adam and Eve in the garden. When you think about Adam and Eve, 
here they are, you know, six days of creation, the sixth day of creation, and Adam's created. God forms him out of the dust, and he says, Adam, I've got this job for you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply, rule and subdue the earth. And then he sits him down and he has him name all the animals. And, you know, I don't know how long that takes, but I'm, I'm certain it was a substantial part of that day. You know, he's sitting in this seat and animals are walking by a gorilla. Yeah, I don't know how it worked. I wasn't there. But, but I mean, it's, I, I assume it's something like that, right? He names all these animals and he comes to the end of the line. The, that, that last animal goes by. Maybe it's a horse. Horse. And he recognizes immediately he's alone in the world. All alone. There's no one by which he can contribute or, or no one in which can be a companion or support for him compi- complying with the, the commands of God. Be fruitful and multiply. How am I going to do that? You see, it demonstrates in the, in the teaching in Genesis that it demonstrates that God did that purposefully so he'd see it. God comes and he puts him to sleep and he takes the rib and he forms the woman. And And... and and Adam wakes up and God brings Eve and presents Eve and presides over this first marriage. And Adam is enthralled by her. This now at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she came out of man. And, and I know that's not the romantic pillow talk you want to hear from your husband on your wedding night. But I'm telling you, this was a big moment in Adam's life. He was excited. And then the chapter ends and they're naked and without shame. And you maybe have heard me say this before, but as a kid growing up, I never understood. What, why would that verse be there? And really, it probably serves no purpose except chapter 3 is coming. Because when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they didn't just destroy their relationship with God, they destroyed their relationship with one another. You see, it says that they hid from God when they heard Him in the garden, but you know who they hid from before they hid from God? They covered up. They recognized they were naked and they were ashamed. So you go from openness and and trust and, and a lack of shame to sin entering the relationship, rebellion against God, driving a wedge between them, and immediately they're doing whatever they can to hide. From the very beginning, from the moment that God presented Adam, or presented Eve to Adam, he always had one intention for marriage. There's this mystery of how his son loves his people. And it would be unveiled by the marriage covenant. You see, God has always intended that in Christian marriage, His glory would be revealed in the midst of our depravity. There's always His plan. And this mystery begins to unfold. And so now we get to stand on the other side of this. And no longer is it, is it a mystery that, that, that we don't get and can't clearly see because by the power of the Spirit, we can begin to see it being being demonstrated by the by the power of the teaching of God's word, we can see how our roles emulate God and reveal His glory in this desperately depraved and dark world. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, and it's always God's plan. 
See, and, and, and part of that plan and the beauty of it, I think, I think part of the beauty of it is that we aren't intended to bear God's glory alone. We're not intended to carry this by ourselves. It's not, it's not necessary that I by myself reveal the fullness of God's glory. Imagine that responsibility. I gotta do everything. See, this, this breaks out the point with, I've been trying to make over and over as we walk through this, and we'll make it, we'll make it at least two more times, that we were created to be interdependent in order that together our lives might glorify God. Together our lives demonstrate a fuller picture of God's glory. And as true as that is for the brothers and sisters that sit in this room, we understand that because of this teaching, because of what Paul presents here, that that's especially true for Christian spouses who fight for the glory of God in their marriage and the good of the church. That's why it's important that you and I understand what this is. That's why it's important that we fight for it in this way. Well, I'm going to break out three things, three ways I think that this passage demonstrates that marriage reveals God's glory. First, Christian marriage unveils the necessary centrality of Jesus and the gospel in our relationships. Sin's ruined it. Sin has trashed our relationships. It, 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 it's shown clearly as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that, that, there, the, that through Christ, He is our peace and we are reconciled to God, but He has torn down the wall of hostility, the divide, dividing walls that separated us. He's torn it down. And now, because of Jesus, we can have peace with one another. We are not just reconciled to God, brothers and sisters. We are reconciled to one another. We can have intimate fellowship. We can have intimate relationship. We no longer have to hide behind the leaves that we can paste on ourselves because Jesus died in our place for our sin and destroyed sin for us. Wiped us clean. We no longer have to hide in sin and shame. We no longer have to be standing in condemnation and trying to prove ourselves to the other person because we have been proven by Jesus. It's absolutely imperative. It's absolutely imperative that Jesus resides at the center of our friend relationships or they don't exist. But there is no way that you get to this oneness without Him. I mean, you can see it specifically as Paul calls husbands and wives to their role. The wife is supposed to be focused on Jesus. The husband is supposed to be following in Jesus' example. Without Him, one of two things I think will happen. We're either going to exalt ourselves in the marriage. It's going to be a me-centered marriage. So I don't really care what my spouse needs. I'm just going to use my spouse to get what I need. Or we're going to exalt marriage and it's going to become our ultimate God. You see, I think we see it, I think we see it demonstrated in our culture all over the place. I, I, I think if you think about why the divorce, the, the rates of divorce and the percentages of people who divorce are so high, I think you'll recognize that in many, at the center of it, it might have excuses like finances. It might have communication at its heart. The reality is at the end of the day, someone's not getting what they want. So they want to move on. Why do so many people live together today rather than get married? Well, the major, the main excuse for that is I, 
I think we need to try this out before we get into marriage. We need to see if this is going to work. The reality is statistics show us that actually the vast majority of people who live together first end up divorced. So apparently that method isn't working, but it's really a selfish perspective. When I get involved in this, is this person going to try to change me? When I step into this, is this person going to fulfill me? Is this really what I want to tie myself to the rest of my life? See, that's what it's about. No, we're not going to talk about that in polite company. Because we don't want to admit how broken we really are. But it's the truth about who we are. And then on the other side of that, there's a whole other end of that perspective. There's, there's married couples who don't really live like they're married anymore. Who say they're fighting for their marriage simply because you just don't get divorced. Well, that doesn't glorify God. That glorifies marriage. It exalts marriage to be the ultimate thing that we fight for and we sacrifice for and we give ourselves up for. That makes marriage the end-all, be-all. It totally removes Jesus and God's glory from the equation. It doesn't have to be that way. Shanti Feldhan, she's a... I don't even know if I said her name right. You you go look her up. I'll tell you how to spell it later. She's a Harvard-trained social researcher, written a book, and... And because she wrote a book, obviously, it's worth quoting. Um, She did some research, and she found that 53% of very happy couples, and that's not just marginally happy, that's very happy couples, agree with this statement. God is at the center of our marriage. So the majority of couples agree, the the very happiest of couples agree with that statement. 7% of struggling couples agree with that statement. But then 30% of struggling couples don't agree with that statement. They don't agree that God belongs at the center. I think the point is that keeping Jesus, keeping our God at the center of our relationship empowers us to live together without the shame and condemnation that our sin brings into the relationship. I was having this conversation this morning. There's not a one of us that walk into marriage without baggage doesn't happen. I carried a lot of baggage. I mean, I had like a full-blown set of suitcases. You know, I was going on a a trip around the world. And I asked Amy over and over, are you sure? Are you sure? I don't think she knew whether she was sure or not because she didn't really know what she was getting into until it was too late. I'm thankful that she didn't figure it out until it was done. But the reality is, is that as sweet as amazing and beautiful as she is to me, she carried baggage too. I'll let her talk about her own, but it was there. When two sinners come together in marriage, there's junk to deal with. And if we are ever going to experience the oneness and see the glory of God, it's got to have Jesus at the center of that. It's the only way that we'll be able to bear ourselves without shame and condemnation. Second, I think that we see in this passage that Christian marriage glorifies God as it exhibits the commingling of love and grace, or law and grace. I'm sorry, the commingling of law and grace. And you're like, man, I don't know about that. I'm pretty theologically sound, and law kind of opposes grace. Okay. 
Well, let's just think about it. As Jesus considers us His bride, there's a legal transaction that happens. Right? That's justification. He stands in our place. He forgives us our sins. He calls us righteous. For that to happen, a legal transaction has to occur. But then there's an extension of covenantal grace that in spite of your performance, it, by, the best, by the best chances you could offer, you'd never measure up. And he says, no matter what happens, I will never break my promise. I will stand by this law. It's really a beautiful thing when you begin to think about it. Because Jesus did that for us. But then in the marriage relationship, He calls us to exemplify it. So it's always been part of the traditions. It's always been part of the expectation that there's a legal transaction happening. Now that's been, that's been done in different ways. In this culture, there was prices paid and there was, there was dowries given. You know, and there was this week-long ceremony that, that demonstrated all that was going on. Sometimes it went longer than a week. In our culture, we stand and we make vows before one another. Legal, binding vows that we can't get out of without going back to court. There's a legal ramification. We, get, we gain legal rights. But in the midst of that, we are calling one another. We are saying to one another that I'm going to be with you through thick and thin. For better or worse, richer or poorer, I am going to extend grace to you. It's really beautiful. And then it goes, I think, a step further. Because first you see the wife called to obey. You know what obedience is bound up in? Commands. You know what commands are just another word for? Law. And husbands are commanded to love, not conditional upon their obedience, but really in spite of whether they do it or not. You see, the reality is this. We believe that as believers, the law has no part to play for us. And I, I, I think that there's a limit to that where that's true. I stand here not because I fulfilled the law, but because Jesus fulfilled the law. But I am not free to act any way I want to. You see, I am free to follow the commands of God. I can't walk, in, I can't walk out into the world and murder somebody for the glory of God. I can't sin that grace may abound. I am called by God's law to obedience because I am bound up in His grace. You see, here's the reality of what happens in us as we are freed and the beauty of what we see in marriage. As we are freed, we are released from the nature that was bound to sin. We were incapable of obedience. We were incapable of glorifying God. We were unable to follow Him or trust Him. But as He freed us, He says, here's your new nature. You are no longer sinner. You are saint. You see, here's the reality of it. Now, just as the wife is able to willfully submit to the husband by the work He's done in us, and hear me, that's important that you understand. By the work He's done in us, we have been able to walk 
in obedience because we want to, not because we have to. You see, there's a beautiful perspective that's presented in marriage. And just as the church is called to obey, or I'm sorry, just as the wife is called to obedience and submission, the church, brothers and sisters, we are called to obedience because we are bound up in the beautiful, powerful grace of our God and Savior. Marriage presents that picture of the commingling of law and grace. Second or third, marriage, Christian marriage, proclaims the gospel as the tangible example of Jesus' love for the church. Everywhere else, everywhere else, we're called to preach the gospel. We're called to proclaim the message. We see it as the power of God unto salvation. And we're called, and we're, we're told in Romans that it's the beautiful of the feet that are sent to preach this message. That, that the reality is that it is a message to be proclaimed. But in marriage, this is the only relationship in all of Scripture that this is said of. In marriage, we are shown, we are taught by this passage that husbands and wives living together as God has called them to fulfilling their roles preaches the gospel without ever uttering a word. Because you see a tangible example of the love of Christ. And you see a tangible example of a grateful people submitting under his leadership and see this it doesn't free us from the preaching of the gospel but when you get when the church gets its marriages functioning as god has called and empowered us to function in the roles we've been called to fulfill it's like the secret sauce that makes big mac such a big deal i mean it gives a tangible example of the very message we proclaim. Husbands and wives is our testimony to the love of Jesus Christ and the submission of His bride, the church. You think that doesn't give room for for our world around us to call out hypocrite when our husbands treat our wives like they're property? You're mistaken. And when wives sit around in public and demean their husbands at work or at the coffee shop because they just don't like the way they're treated, but they're publicly stating, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, you don't think that undermines the love of Jesus Christ. You are mistaken. You see, this at its heart, at its core, at the ultimate picture of, the, of, of marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we deny it, we're missing it. We're misusing it and we're abusing it. Real quickly, just this won't take nearly as long. It actually will build out of what I've just shared. Christian marriage is a gift from God for the good of His people. Now, I think it's unfortunate in our culture and really probably in that culture as well, because Paul wrote on two different times emphasizing marriage and then one time emphasizing singleness, but they get pitted against one another. And so as you're sitting here today, the reality is, is that as a single person, you're probably thinking, well, this really doesn't have a lot to do with me because I'm single and I don't plan on getting married. But the reality is marriage is a good gift to you. There's a point where Paul says, hey, I wish everybody could be like me. 
I wish everybody could be single and devote their life completely and fully to the glory of God. But if you take that passage as preeminent and deny what Paul is saying here, then you've just undermined the, the authority of Scripture. The reality is we need both. Single people, if you're here today, we need you. We need you. The church needs you. You have a vital role and function to play. But don't miss the fact that even for you, marriage is a good gift. Let me show you. I think we see it. Christian marriage benefits the whole church as it represents the glory of God. That's what I've just been building out for the last three points. I mean, it seems pretty intuitive to me that all of a sudden we begin to receive the benefit. We, God's people, not just married people, God's people receive the benefit of being able to see in real time. I mean, we can read about His glory all day long, right? But how different is it when we're able to put flesh on it? Why did Jesus come and put flesh? So that we could see the glory of God. He leaves marriage for us as an example of His glory that's good for every one of you. No matter how old you are. No matter how, how young you are. No matter whether you ever plan to be married or not. Marriage is a good gift to you because through it, as you observe it and you see husbands loving wives as Christ loved the church and you see wives submitting to husbands, you see the glory of God revealed. You see the commingling of law and grace. You see His gospel message proclaimed as a reminder to you that you stand not by your own power, but by the unconditional, powerful, purposeful love of Jesus Christ. We need that in our church. We need it. It is a good gift for you. And so never, never let yourself be, be, be demeaned because you're single, but never let yourself feel less than because you are married. We have vital roles to play. The church needs you both. Second, the, the second thing I think that demonstrates God's goodness as a, or marriage is a good gift for God's people, is that Christian marriage draws our attention away from our selfish desires to serve another selflessly. Now, <clears throat> I don't think it has to be in marriage. I think the reality is that single people can serve selflessly. But, man, there's a process by which in marriage... Your attention has to be drawn. In fact, Paul, he reflects on it. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He talks about the fact that in marriage, our attention is drawn by another. But I think we're mistaken if we think that he's saying that that's a position that's of less value. Because when you put it right next to this passage, you begin to see that actually there's an important part of God's mission that's caught up in that. Now, you've heard it said by, by a, a much wiser Smarter man than me. His name's John Piper. And I would, I would not debate him. I would not try to tell him he's wrong. You've heard him say that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with Him. When, when we begin to recognize that the benefit of knowing God and experiencing God comes from seeing Him glorified in our lives. But I think the reality is what we learn here, maybe to be a little more specific and a little more precise, is that God is most glorified in us when together we are most satisfied in Him. You see the distinction? 
The gospel knows nothing. And honestly, here, let me just say this before I go any further. I tried like crazy to contact John Piper and just present that to him. So if you have a way to call him, you call him and ask him if he wouldn't agree with that statement. I think he'd agree with that statement. The reality is the gospel knows nothing of a selfish and lonely individual existence. You can see it all the way through the letter of Ephesians. You see it all the way through the New Testament. The preaching of the gospel draws people, God's people together. It unites us. It ties us to, to be one family. And together, as we take our attention off of one another, off of ourselves, I'm sorry, as we draw our attention away from ourselves, we are being, we are being grown into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And marriage has the specific design and expectation of God that we would do that. Not that we replace God, but that as we keep Him central to our relationship, we serve one another selflessly. I mean, really, when you think about this, when you think about this, in our culture, wives don't want to hear the word submit. What they're called to, to give up themselves, is a big deal for them because they think that it in some way demeans them. But most often in feminist circles, they ignore what God has called the husband to. And the reality, when you look at the heart of each one of those commands, it's a dying to self that you might see Christ glorified and His purpose um, revealed in the life of another. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That in no way means you're getting what you want. You are living for her best interest and the glory of God. Wives, submit unto your wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. That in no way puts you in a place where you're where, where, where you're less, where you don't have some purpose to play. But you are a picture of the church. And if you don't think the church is is important to Jesus, then you don't understand the sacrifice and the love He gave for it. And finally. Let me just say this in closing. Christian marriage is good. It's a good gift from God for all of His people because Christian marriage sanctifies us as we face the challenge of living like Jesus. Again, I don't think you have to be married for God to have His way and to sanctify you and cause you to look like Jesus. But in marriage, your spouse is not intended to make you happy She's been given to you or he's been given to you by God to make you holy, to make you look like Jesus. Kathy Keller, I referred to Tim Keller in Kathy Keller's book at the beginning. She makes the point in her portion of the book. She says, in marriage, we all get to play the Jesus role. You might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just read the passage and it says that the wife is the church. And that the, the husband is to play the role of Christ. Remember the context. That's why it's important we never take a passage outside of the context. The church at large was called to imitate Jesus. So wives, husbands, you are called to emulate Christ. 
as you love one another as He loved you, as you forgive one another as He forgave you. The reality is this, that there are times where both of you will have to stand in the place of Jesus and offer grace and forgiveness for the spouse that failed you. Don't don't tell me you don't think that's good for you. That's a very good and godly thing. Not just for you, but for the brothers and sisters that sit around you. And for the very dark world filled with depravity that we live in, that our marriages get to proclaim the gospel before. is a very good thing. Let's pray. Father, you are good. The very definition of good. What you say is good. <laughs> We're grateful. We're grateful for the gift of marriage. We're grateful, God, for your glory. And that we get to experience it. That we get to see it. That we get to know it. How would you work in us now? I specifically think, God, of the marriages represented in this church. I don't know what everyone looks like behind closed doors. But you do. Spirit, I I just pray. I pray for you to move in the lives of our, our married couples in this moment. Help them see what they're fighting for. Not just a relationship. The glory of God and the good of the church. Spirit, would you move in the hearts of those who are single in this room at this moment? That they might see that even though they might, they're not married, and, and maybe they long to be married, but that they get to experience the benefit of marriage now. Would you help them to see that? Would you help each of us, Father, to take our eyes off of ourself that we might act like your Son and selflessly serve in love and grace? Would you, might, would you convict us of sin that's destroying our relationships, that's destroying our marriages, that's destroying our our friendships and the intimacy for which you've called your people. Would you call us to repentance? That we might live in obedience because we are experiencing the boundless, measureless, powerful, rich grace that you've lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.